Ah, this has been a fun series, hasn't it? Fun for you guys, maybe not so much fun for us. You get to stand here in the hot seat, which is hard to do to stand in the hot seat. But we're just going to jump right into this. And uh, the very first thing that we need to do before we start looking at these questions is find out if there's anybody that needs a Bible. And so right now our ushers are going to come forward. We're going to be looking at some passages that you're definitely going to want to probably reread and look at yourself. And so if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand right now and they will give you one. Uh, If you don't, like if this is, you don't have a Bible, take this with you. It's a free gift from us to you. Use it, mark it up, allow God to speak to you through it. All right, your questions. Here we go. These are your questions verbatim as as you guys submitted them. I have always believed that God is compassionate and merciful, loving all his children without limit, and would never punish the innocent without at, least, without at least offering them an opportunity for redemption. Yet he commanded that Joshua and the Israelites were to show no mercy to any of the inhabitants of the promised land that they encountered. How can this be the same God? Another question. Why would a loving, benevolent God ask to kill and destroy so many, including women and children, and worse, chastise and discipline those who would not fully carry out this task? Now, I know that his ways are not our ways, but it is very hard to just accept some of these things. And the final question we have, why do bad things happen to good people? If God is in total control, why does he allow his children to suffer? These are some good questions. And um, you know, we're going to just kind of walk through them. It really boils down to two questions. The first one that, that you're asking here is, is the God in the Old Testament different than the God in the New Testament? Why is it that we see a God that seems at times to be very harsh, and yet then we see Jesus in the New Testament, he seems to be so loving? And uh, before we kind of dig any further, I want to say one thing is that I know that, that I've heard some people, and I've been in places where they try to like just kind of hide these verses, or ignore them, or say, well, you know, that was a different time back then. But we cannot do that. We cannot go in there and just say, well, you know, we're going to cross out some of these passages here that we don't like and, and then all these passages we like because as soon as we do that, then what have we done? Who becomes God? Who becomes the judge of what's right and what's wrong? So we're going to deal with these passages. Now the first uh, question that, that was asked there talked a little bit about Joshua. And uh, Joshua was the one who, when, when God had promised had given this promised land to Israel. Joshua was the one who was going to conquer and take the promised land. Now, unfortunately, the promised land had all these people living in it, and God said, Joshua, I want you to go in there, and I want you to wipe these people out. Just clear them off. Not push them out, but, but kill them, destroy them. Uh, the other question in there is actually referring to a time, um, a period of time known as the, the time of the judges. And uh, the last judge of Israel before they had a king was Samuel. He was also a prophet. And uh, Samuel was the one that when the people cried out for a king, God used Samuel to give them the king. And who was the very first king of all Israel? was Saul. That's right. And so we're just going to read this passage. So I want you to hear. I mean, this, this is the passages that people are, are questioning if you've never heard these passages before. 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. I mean, even the folks at Peter are going to have problems with this passage. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff, isn't it? God says, I want you to wipe them out, even their children and their infants. And here's the irony is that Saul did not fully take care of this. He killed all the people, but he left the king alive and he left some of their, um, their cattle and, and some of their goods. And uh, when, when Samuel saw this, he comes over to Saul and he pulls out his sword in front of Saul and he goes over to this king and he kills the king. He stabs the, the king and he says, Saul, because you did not obey God, you were rejected as king over Israel. And that is how David ended up rising up because of this place right here kind of the final straw. Now, how do we compare that? How do we make sense of that passage right there? And then Psalms 103, where it says that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's some tough stuff. Now, now the other question that we're kind of dealing with here too is why do bad things happen to good people? Now, I think all of us know people who have had things happen to them and even though we, we admit that these people, are not, these people are not completely perfect, we still go, how is this fair? Why are these terrible things happening to these people? We don't have to go into the Bible to, to discover this, do we? I mean, we all have experiences. Uh, right now, in my own life group, I've got two instances. I've got one member of my life group who um, moved here from Colorado Springs, and the church that they were connected with, there was a, a really good friend of theirs who uh, was a missionary or who went on a mission trip to Haiti. And he was a photographer. He's there and um, in one of the hotels right when the earthquake happened. And uh, his buddy escaped, and he ended up perishing. And not only did he perish, but he left uh, two small kids at home who are never going to get to grow up with a father, a daughter who is never going to be given away by, by her biological father. And uh, we look at this, and we go, why? I mean, here is this guy who is out there serving God's kingdom, doing good, and in the process. I mean, had he not been a missionary, maybe he'd still be alive today, right? But he's gone. And then I, I've got another member of our life group that um, has just gone into financial ruin because of the economy. And they happen to have a four-year-old little girl. And she started having some behavioral problems. And... Um, and they were frustrated with her. Why is she acting this way? Then suddenly she starts to have convulsions. They take her to Wake Med. From there they take her to Duke. They have 25 specialists who are trying to figure out exactly what she has, why these things are happening. Um, right now, if you saw her, she looks like she has Parkinson's when she's walking. Uh, she has difficulty with speech, her speech patterns. You, you know, there's times where her memory is just completely gone. And um, there's about three times that they thought they, they were going to end up losing her. And even though they're trying to treat this, it's so new, so bizarre of, of an illness that they're not really sure what's going to happen. And she's four years old. She's not some story. She's a little girl that in our life group that, that my kids play with and that we love on. 
Why? Why does she have to go, go through all this? this? Why, why, why is this family without their father? And yet right now, even as we speak, there are pedophiles who are out there doing their thing and they're not even caught. Nothing's happening to them. How is that fair? I mean, really, when we look at the two questions that we have today that we're, we're trying to tackle, they really speak to an even deeper question. What is God really like? I mean, is God, is he loving and is he merciful and faithful and consistent? Can you trust that, that if I respond this way, then God will respond this way and, and, and he'll be consistent throughout that, that you know, our lives? Or, or is God really kind of capricious and, and finicky? And is he a bipolar God? Like, does he wake up and, and say, you know, I, I'm feeling, I'm, I'm in a good mood today. Blessings on you. But if he wakes up in a bad mood, it's trials and judgment. Is he unfair? I mean, does he just, you know, what kind of God do we serve? What kind of God is this? And then to take it even a little deeper, really we're not so much concerned about some type of a philosophical, theological argument. The real question is, why am I having to deal with the things that are happening in my life? How do I overcome these trials and tribulations? How do I even make sense of what's happening to me and to my loved ones? Well, I think if we're going to try to begin to tackle some of this, and these are difficult questions, we need to begin by starting to examine the nature of God. If we look a little bit closer at God, I think it's going to help us to try to have a little bit better understanding of what might be going on. First of all, we need to understand that God does not change. He is what theologians call immutable. That means that he, he doesn't have anything that's missing. Um, it's not like he created us human beings and he's like, you know, I'm learning on how to deal with these guys. And now it's making a little bit more sense, you know. He has no learning curve, okay. Nothing can be added to him. In Malachi 3.6, he speaks out and he says, I, the Lord... Do not change. In Numbers 23, 19, he says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. And really, when we start to look into the Old Testament, you know, we see all of those, those, you know, God says, go out there and commit genocide. But that Psalm 103, that loving and compassionate and slow to anger, that's Old Testament, folks. But how about the New Testament? The New Testament, we get God in flesh, Jesus, he is Emmanuel. That's literally what it means, God in flesh. We see Jesus as loving and caring. That's great in the New Testament, right? But as soon as Jesus dies and he's raised again from the dead and he ascends into heaven and the church begins, we get the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, you guys remember we just took an offering a little bit ago? Well, that's exactly what happened. Ananias and Sapphira, they're they're members of Jerusalem, you know, First Jerusalem Christian Church. And uh, it's time for an offering. They go out and they sell a field and they they take the money and they cut back a little bit for themselves and then they give the rest to the church. And Peter says, is this all of the money that was, was from that land? And he says, yep, that's all of it. And he's struck dead in that moment. Then his wife comes in. Peter says, is this all the money from that land that you sold? She says, yep, struck dead. And you guys participated in that today. You just, you brought offerings. 
You know what else it says in the New Testament? When the church was getting started? Paul has some things to say about the Lord's Supper, communion. We just took care of this, right? And Paul says that some of you, when you come into church and you do this symbolic act that says, I'm in alignment with Jesus and I'm removing sin, some of you, when you come in this, you do this in hypocrisy. It's not really true. He says, because of that, when you walk out, some of you are sick. Some of those disease and illnesses that you're facing, some of your cancers, there's not some other cause. There weren't power lines. It's because you came into church and you said you were aligned with Jesus. And it was complete hypocrisy. In fact, he says, some of you have fallen asleep. And the biblical reference there means that you're dead. He says, there were times that people have died because they have come in here and so offended God in hypocrisy of taking the Lord's Supper when they had no intention and their life was completely out of alignment. God does not change. All right, so that, pe- that part's answered there. But all of this stuff even gets worse the more we follow it. Because you know what else we find out about God's nature? God is omniscient and omnipotent. Right? Omniscient, it's, it's omni, it means all. And science, we get our word science from that, it's knowing. That means that God is all-knowing. And God is omnipotent. He is omnipotent. The ability to make change. He has power. He can do anything he wants. And so what that means is that right now, whatever you're facing, whatever your loved ones is facing, God knows about it. He knows how you got there, and he knows what's going to happen in the future. And not only that, but he has the power to change it. It's all within his power. So nothing is happening to you that God is not allowing to happen. How does that make you feel? Have you ever really been angry with God? And just really angry because of how things are turning out in your own life, how they don't make sense, why this is happening to somebody you care about? Have you ever wanted to be able to just sit down and have an audience and say, God, I just want to know why. Why did you do what you did here? Why did you allow me to go through this? You know, we actually have a story in, in, in the Bible, a true story, of, of somebody who got the opportunity to do that very thing. To sit God down and to ask him those questions. And if there was ever anybody who, who deserved a right to sit down and ask God questions, it was this man named Job. Now, many of you have probably never heard of Job or don't even know anything about his story, but Job was a righteous man. He was somebody who spent his time serving God. In fact, he was so concerned that, that maybe his kids might have sinned against God that he would put up offerings just in case they might have sinned in their heart. And when you have somebody who's righteous, it just it made perfect sense that God just poured out his blessing on Job. And Job was the richest man in all of the world at his time. Job was a good man. And good things happen to good people, don't they? But then we pick up this story. And it says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. It's a little frightening, isn't it? Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan's right there, and God starts talking smack. Oh, you've been, you've been going in and out throughout the world? You didn't have to come upon Job, did you? 
Have you, have you checked out Job? Have you tried tempting Job lately? Yeah, Job is my man. What, does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds have spread throughout the land. Ah, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then shortly after that, messengers came to Job and they said, your flocks that were out there, raiders have come from the north, raiders have come from the west. And they have wiped them out and they have killed all of your servants. Job, you were the richest man in the world, but you are now the poorest man in the world. You own nothing. And then another messenger came in and said, do you remember how your your kids were having that big party at that one house? Well, wind just came whipping in and the house collapsed and all of your children, sons and daughters, are dead. Now, folks, this is not a fable It's not some type of Greek myth. This is a real man who had real children that he and his wife had invested in and loved and cared for and had plans for and and, and had dreams. And in an instant, they were gone. Everything that this man had was taken away from him. And you know what God said to Job? Nothing. He just was to live life that way. And in all of that, Job looked at this, and in all of his pain, he said, what can I say here? Everything that I have has been given from God. God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And thus he is sent to live his life, right? We pick up our story again. Period of time goes by. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And about this time, Job saying, no, 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 don't say anything, right? It says here, there is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Ah, skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but you stretch out your hand and you strike his flesh and bones. Ah, well, he'll surely curse you to your face. And so the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands but you must spare his life. And so Satan goes out and he afflicts Job with this serious disease, with these wounds where where he's got these scabs. And so we find Job sitting with a, a shattered piece of pottery, scraping his wounds, his children dead, his wife frustrated with him. And then he has these friends that come in. And because we all know that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people and bad things are happening to Job, his friends decided to help him out by pointing out that, Job, you obviously did some bad things. And so they get on his case. And he says, well, hey, I might have done some things, but, you know, I don't know. He says, I just, I just wish God would take me, or I wish I could just sit down and have an audience with God. And while they're speaking, this storm begins to come in. 
and God speaks from this, the clouds and the storm. And first thing he does is he puts those guys, those, those friends of his in his place. Because they just, they, they were saying they know and had things figured out like they knew and understood God. God says, you don't know me. You don't know why I do what I do. And then he turns to Job. And he gives Job that audience that he wanted. It says, the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then, the, and then Job answered the Lord. I mean, this is the moment, right? All this stuff has happened to Job. His children are dead. I mean, this is the moment. And, and now Job gets to speak and ask God. And it says here that Job answered the Lord and said, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Job had this opportunity. And somehow, in the presence of God, even in the midst of all the terrible things that happened to him, and the fact that he had no idea why it was, God's holiness and his blackness compared to God's holiness and God's might and his power, Job's smallness, that in that moment when he saw God, he was in his presence. He was silent. He had nothing to say. You see, that's the deal when it comes before God is that, is that he is infinite and we are finite. We are so small that we can in no way put ourselves in a place where we can even question God as to why he does what he does, even though it is so frustrating at times. I mean, think about this. Who of you here can tell me about what life was like in 1900? I mean, was anybody here, other than looking at history books, was anybody born in 1900 that you know of? Anybody in this room? I mean, we just first came on this scene, right? Think back, what's your earliest memory? I mean, there, there's a point where you can't think back any further, right? You've got a beginning. You know, God may have put an, you know, a, a sense of eternity in your heart. In Ecclesiastes, it says, Solomon, man of wisdom, says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Everything has a beginning, Right? But God doesn't have a beginning. He's infinite. There is no beginning to God. God resides outside of time and space. We cannot begin to even understand or even think along those terms. Even when we start to play with it, we still put it in terms of then and now. Think of a color that you've never seen before. Not a shade, not a sheen. A, a brand new color. You can't come up with a new color. But God could create a brand new color that is within his power to do those kinds of things. God's ways, they're beyond us. And so we have only but one choice, and that is to trust God. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What Jesus tells us is that we're just to come to God like a child. He says, when you come, just trust God like a child trusts its parents because you just don't know. You know, a child just doesn't understand why, why we do what we do. I mean, that's why I have to deal with massive fits every night when I try to put my kids to bed because they don't realize that this is for their benefit, right? All they think is that dad is causing them pain and agony, all right? 
Now, I don't understand why God does what he does. But he does what he does. And when we start to look at the nature of God, and we already talked about his omniscience and his omnipotence and and his changelessness, but there's other parts of his nature too. The very core, the very essence of who God is, is love. John, who was Jesus's, probably his closest disciple, said these words, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I look at this passage. It says, God is love. And the ultimate definition of that love is him sending his own son. And you know, I... I deal with this stuff sometimes on a philosophical and a theological level. And I like to, you know, you study, we, we, in seminary, you play with this stuff, right? And you go, well, what does that really mean? Because, hey, we already talked about how God's changeless and he's immutable and he doesn't need anything. Nothing causes him pain. So what does it mean that he gave up his son? How did that, you know what? The beauty here is, it, and this is just a little side note. Scriptures were not intended for theologians. It was intended for just regular people, okay? And so if you need to understand God's love, You need to just imagine you having a son or daughter and giving them up for somebody else who has despised you. And then you will understand the very nature and the very core of what it means to love. You know, I I like to think that I'm a loving father. (laughs) You know, uh, I try to do things that are are, are to benefit my kids. I I can remember one instance when I, I took Brooklyn and Tressa to the doctor to get their flu shots. And I made the mistake by having my older daughter, Brooklyn, get her shot first. And so Tressa watched this, saw that needle go into that arm, and she ducked behind that table and started screaming bloody murder. I grabbed her, and I tried with all of my might to hold down all 35 pounds of her. And then she finally got that shot. And do you know what it's like to get a shot when you got your muscle tense like this? Uh, that thing had to have hurt, okay? <laughs> And you know, I always get the call on these kind of duties. My wife is never the one that does this, this part of the child rearing. And the reason that is, is because she's got all this empathy. And I got a little less empathy. I got love, okay? But I, it's just, I, I don't know. I'm part of it, maybe it's a guy. It's, I probably got other issues too. But when I look at this, I go, this is for her benefit. I know that. It's far better for her to get a little shot now than to go through all the pain of having that flu. And so it just, apart from holding her down, it doesn't bother me that much. But it would bother my wife because she would see her face and she would see the pain that she's going through. And, and my wife would feel that pain on the inside. And you see, the thing you need to understand about God is not only is his core love, but God feels your pain. God feels your pain. You know, there's one passage of scripture that has always eluded me. It's, it's just a confusing passage to me. It's this uh, the story of, of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus. Uh, Jesus had this family that he was very close with. It was Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And, um, and so, you know, he, he would, we know that, that Mary and Martha, at times they were probably supporting his ministry. And uh, he would connect with them, stop in when he was in town. And so, in the story, we, we find out that that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. It's literally about this time in sequence to Easter, you know, next week. 
And so people are looking out for Jesus and there's this entire piece that goes with Jesus. You know, he's, he, the messengers are sent and Lazarus is sick and he's really sick and you need to come. And Jesus says, you know, we're gonna come, but, um, you know, we're gonna be a little bit. And, uh, and so this whole entire piece ensues where Jesus is saying, you know, he's telling his disciples that, hey, Lazarus is sick. You know, he's gonna fall asleep. And they, oh, well, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. And he says, no. We mean the biblical side. Lazarus is going to die. It's a good thing that I'm here so that you, you can end up believing when you see all this stuff that's going to happen. You know, he's going to rise again. And so Jesus ends up um, coming down to, to their place. And by this point, Lazarus is already in the tomb. And he's already in the process of decaying. And Martha runs out to Jesus. And she says, if, Lord, if only you had been here, you, you, could, have, you could have healed him. You could have saved him. And so they have this conversation. And, and Martha's probably a little bit more like me. You know, she's very logical about this. I know he's going to rise again at the end of the age. And they have this conversation. But then comes Mary. And Mary's the emotional one. Mary's the one who feels. Mary's the one who just sucks in all the essence of these things and just it, it flows out, right? And Mary says the same, same thing. She says, Lord, if only you had been here, he would have been saved. And she falls down just weeping at his feet. And it says there in John 11 that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And in the shortest passage in all the scriptures, Jesus wept. It's not just the, the shortest passage, it's the most confusing to me because that's just not what I would have done. I would have said, Mary, I know you're weeping right now. I'd be smiling on my face. God know what's coming, you know? <laughs> I'd say, yeah, I'm gonna, just going to show you something. Just get up, come around, come with me. And I would go in there, I'd raise Lazarus. I'd say, see, I, I got this all thing this figured out. That's not what Jesus does. Even though Jesus knows what he is about to do, he so feels the emotion, feels the pain that he weeps with her. You see, that is the God that we serve. He's not just playing God. Yes, Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do, but he walks with us through the trials and tribulations that we face. God is there, and you can trust in that God. In fact, that's the same God who's going to provide you relief now and later. There was a time when, when Jesus had his disciples gathered and they were looking at the cost of following him, looking at the cost of living in this world and being a follower of his. And, and they said, well, we see all these things and, and, and we've, lived, we've left so much and we've, we've gone through, we've experienced so much pain in following you, Christ. What, Jesus, what, what is there for us at the end of the age? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brother or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is saying no matter what you end up experiencing as loss, and, and believe me, if you decide to follow him, things are probably going to get worse for you, not better. That even in this present world, knowing him and having him in your life and having the God who loves you and feels your pain 
is worth more than walking through this life without him. And not only will you feel his presence now, but he is a great restorer. And whatever is lost along the way, whatever pain, he can cover that up. He can bring peace. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to have everybody stand and we are going to sing how great God is. We're going to acknowledge that this God who's mysterious and that we question, that we don't understand at times, that this is the God who understands us even when we don't understand him, who is so big and so infinite and so great greater than anything that we can imagine, that he is fully worthy for us to place our trust in who he is and what he's about.